On today's episode, we're celebrating 200 episodes with a special Q&A. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. I wish I had one of those party whistles to help me in my celebrations of 200 episodes. It's a, it's a nice milestone. And thanks for joining me to, to listen to this special Q&A that we have. Um, I've had in the past, I guess, 100 episodes, like so much has happened in reg- regards to the actual podcast and the growth I've had. Um, I actually looked up in the stats. So back in on the 100th episode when that was released, I was, in terms of downloads, I was averaging about 16,000 downloads per month for the podcast. Now, as we go into episode 200, we're averaging close to 50,000 per month. So that's a a huge climb, more than double, um, easily more than double. And the most popular episode to date has been obviously episode one, if you were to guess, with 6,179 listens, um, individual listeners. And that's just, it's great for me to see because like if there was the most listened episode, I'd want it to be episode one because I always encourage people to go back, listen to episode one, always uh, listen through the first 10 because they cover the 10 universal principles that every runner needs to know if they want to reduce their risk of injury, increase running performance safely. They need to understand all these principles. And so going back through the stats and seeing episode number one is the most popular, um, gives me a good feeling. Other episodes that were uh, some of the most popular were um, part one, Running Lean with Food and Mindset with Patrick McGilvray. Others were the Masters Running Masterclass with Claire Batholic. It seems like Masters Runners and anything to do with nutrition and um, diet is high up there and what another popular episode one of the most downloaded is marathon pb tactics and strategies with uh, brian hanley talking about how to tactically plan out your marathon strategy on race day like pace strategies all those sort of things and so thought it'd be interesting just to share for you guys to have those insights in terms of all time downloads we're almost approaching half a million so 477,603 and another stat that I'm very proud of and it is the patrons, the patron list. We're at 83 at the moment. Um, 
And so that's just shows that you guys are loving the podcast. You guys are wanting to get more involved, get a, a deeper insight, interacting the, with the podcast on a, on a deeper level. And seeing that grow is a good feeling as well because we're growing a community. We're growing people who, uh, a community of people who love the running knowledge. They want to invest in their own running IQ rather than just having someone just tell them what to do. And uh, I'm all about that empowerment and all about that investigating things yourself because once, if you just give a man a fish, um, they just eat for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, they have that skill for the rest of their life. I feel like this is very similar in terms of building up your own running IQ and just applying that to injury prevention in the future, to any injuries or symptoms that do come up in the future, no matter what it is, um, just is applied. So um, thought you would enjoy those. Um, some the episode that I had, episode number 100, I wanted to do something special and I decided to have snippets of like my favorite episodes for the first hundred or what made me change the way I think or what what was really memorable. And so I had snippets here and there and the title was celebrating a hundred episodes. It didn't really contain any, any new um, content. It didn't really have any intriguing kind of title. And so surprisingly, um, the hundredth episode, there wasn't a lot of downloads. And when I just like looked back at it, I looked back at the title, looked back at the idea for the episode, didn't offer anything new, wasn't that intriguing. Um, and so I thought for the 200th episode still needs to be fresh content and still striving towards the goals that you have or the knowledge that you want to build upon. And so I decided to do a Q&A episode. We have some listeners that have put in some voice recordings and um, as the title gives away, there's a few um, questions on those topics. And so I put the call out on social media around um, to, I would prefer if someone does submit a voice recording, I think it, do, it is a better way to interact. I think it is better listening if someone does submit a voice recording and uh, I didn't receive many. <laughs> and so I then put the call out to, again, onto Facebook. Um, you know, I'm still looking for some questions. Do you have any? Then a flood of questions came in, but also amongst those flood of questions coming in, so did some voice recordings. And so now I'm just going to use the voice recordings, but thank you to everyone who submitted their questions. Um, I might use them in the future. We, um, but for this particular episode, for this special Q&A, we'll just stick to the voice recordings. And uh, we'll dive in now. So our first one comes from Alyssa, who you might recognize the name. She had a success story a few episodes ago, and she's submitted another question. So I have set a goal to run the 5K in a certain amount of time as far as a speed goal, but I have also set a distance goal to run a half marathon next year. Which goal should I work on first? Can you work on both of them at the same time? Or should you pick one? And if so, which one? What a great question. Thanks, Alyssa, for that. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts. So we're talking about goal setting and we're talking about having a speed goal and we're talking all like a short distance speed goal and then also a distance goal concurrently going at the same time. My initial thing, my initial thought is you could do both, especially if you're a runner who thrives off variety and if that variety helps 
you with your motivation levels or if it helps you maintain consistency. I can see a lot of runners that if they have like those concurrent goals, it just provides a variety enough for them to have a high um, entertainment factor or just high motivation factors. And so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, sometimes I think having the two, after you ask this question, Alyssa, I was kind of thinking it's kind of the two can help balance each other out, but also can help enhance one of the other qualities. So for instance, I just finished doing a patron episode on strides and mentioned in there, I think it was Jason Fitzgerald that um, said it initially, but doing some strides and doing like short, fast efforts can sometimes help you improve your running economy at lower speeds. Because if you're running at really high, close to sprinting speeds, you kind of build a coordination and you build like a running technique and uh, sort of like a balance that you just develop that skill, you develop that posture, you develop those, the coordination and those motor pattern timing type of things, which then can translate them when you, you sort of maintain those qualities or you learn those qualities and adapt it into slower speeds. But it also helps the running economy once you go down to those slower speeds. So sometimes some faster efforts can carry over into helping those speeds. But Conversely, you can also uh, running distance. So if you do slow running, uh, long volumes or high volumes, but it's like long distances, that can also help your running speed. And it sounds counterintuitive, but a ton of coaches have said like, if you do, if you have a whole bunch of runners that all do low mileage stuff, the one that has the biggest base, the one that has still doing really low, uh, slow miles, but has a bigger weekly mileage, they're more likely going to um, win, say, a 10K race because they've got a bigger base. And so sometimes that distance goal, like if you're training for a marathon, that can actually help your 5K time because you're building up that base. So they can kind of um, have some synergy off one another And so that's why it can be nice to have those two going concurrently. But if you're trying to do both, I do have a list of four things here that is kind of like my advice if you decide to do those things concurrently. Uh, Number one is to make sure the race and the speed goal date aren't too close together because you want to train for both. And when it gets closer to say the marathon time or your marathon date, you don't want your 5K goal to be around about that date as well because as it gets closer to the race date, you want to get more specific or more tailored to what designing or helping the body achieve what it's about to do. So an example would be um, if your marathon is in six months' time, maybe you do your 5K goal in four months' time or five months' time. And so when you get closer to that 5K goal, you then start being a little bit more specific to achieving that goal. And then once you achieve that goal, you can then focus on the marathon and be more specific towards the marathon. But in that first five months, when you're working on both of them together, they can kind of um, have that synergy off one another and have the benefits or carryover benefits of one another. So make sure 
number one, make sure that the goals that you set out to achieve aren't sandwiched too close together because you do want to be specific when it gets closer to that race date. The second one is you still want to maintain an 80-20 intensity distribution. And even though you might have some speed goals in mind, you want to make sure that 80% of your overall training is really low intensity. So we're looking at like a three or a four RPE, rate of perceived exertion, which I've done an episode on that a couple of months ago, if you're not familiar with that. Um, So you still want to maintain that distribution. And some people who have speed goals, they think they need to do a lot more speed work and then their intensity distribution turns out to be like 50-50 and then they run into some troubles because they overdo themselves and overload themselves and start breaking down. So you might want to do like a smaller time trial. If, you, if you've if you set out a 5K goal, then you might want to do say a 2K time trial um, every two weeks and be like specifically tailored around that. Maybe have one shorter interval session per week. Um, maybe you're doing strides. Maybe you're doing intervals of running for one minute, uh, like at a really fast pace for one minute and then jogging for say five minutes and doing that five times. So there's not a lot of time spent in really high intensities and we're keeping to that 20% of your overall weekly mileage. So that's number two. Number three is to write out some mini goals and to ensure you don't have a huge or, or, or an abrupt change in your process. So write these things down. So if you have that 5K goal in three months time, throughout those three months, even if it's just week by week, just write down where you need to be. So if it's three months time in eight weeks, this is where I expect to be. Maybe this is what I want my 5k time to be, or maybe this is what I want my 3k personal best to be. And just re-engineer it, work your way backwards. And then once you start planning it out week by week, there's no big jumps. You can you can see it down on paper. You can see that there's no abrupt changes. The weekly mileage is slowly building up. The weekly intensity is slowly building up and there's no big gaps um, because sometimes when you do have a goal in mind and you want to train for a marathon or you have a timed thing planned, if you don't have the weeks by weeks written down, sometimes it can get ahead of you or sometimes you can be a bit complacent and be like, oh, I really need to catch up here. And you make that big jump and then that increases the likelihood of injury. And so when you have these two goals concurrent, just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. It's best to write these things down so it makes sense on paper before you execute it. And uh, this is kind of fresh in my mind because this is what I was writing a chapter about this with the the Run Smarter book, which hopefully comes out uh, next year, definitely before episode 300. And I was um, explaining when I was writing this that having these mini goals written down on paper, make sure it's written down, make sure you can visually see it to make sure there's it all makes sense. Because if you just do it in the heat of the moment or you not can't remember what mileage you did last week or you can't remember what intensities you did last week, it, 
there's a lot of guesswork and a lot of gray area and it just increases the likelihood of you going astray or just not knowing that you've overdone yourself and then all of a sudden you're left with an injury. Number four, if you do have these concurrent goals of speed and distance, make sure you're still leaving some time to strength train. So strength train twice a week. All runners should be doing it to increase your resiliency, just become well-rounded. And so sometimes if you have too many running goals, you might decide to prioritize running above all else. But I'm here to remind you to make sure that strength training is still implemented in um, the program twice a week. And that's going to be um, my four things. So the four things, make sure the race days or the the time for the goals aren't too close together. Make sure you're still maintaining an 80-20 intensity distribution. Write down your mini goals and make sure you still have time for strength training. Our next question that we have submitted comes in from Sam. Hi, Brody. Congratulations on 200 episodes of the Run Smarter podcast. My question is, when it comes to recovery, what's a better marker, time on feet or distance covered? Thank you. So I asked Sam about a bit of a clarification around this and she was referring to recovery after injury. So when you are injured and returning to running following that injury, is it best to track your distance or is it better to track your time on feet um, in order to just just have as a benchmark or have as a marker to see how you're responding to that loading? And so uh, if we go back to basics, an injury, if you are injured, let's just say you have a sore knee, um, it now has a new adaptation zone. It has a different level of capacity that is different to the rest of the body. Sometimes it's a little bit less than the rest of your body. So if you overload yourself um, beyond the point where it exceeds that injury site, then the symptoms are gonna get worse. So we're talking about a loading issue. It's um, important to know that, important to recognize, and that when we return to running, we need to follow this new adaptation zone specifically for this injury, specifically for the knee, if we're talking about a knee injury. And based on symptoms and ton of episodes on that, we progress accordingly. So it might be a less than a four out of 10 during, returns to baseline symptoms 20, in less than 24 hours. That might be our kind of benchmark. So we subject our body to a certain amount of load and then see how it responds and then make our interpretations and make our future decisions accordingly. So when choosing between distance and time, it doesn't really matter provided that you keep the scale consistent. So for example, if you had, if you're coming back from this knee injury and you can run for 15 minutes, you can tolerate 15 minutes, the pain levels are two out of 10 and then drops back down to a zero or one by the next day. We now know that 15 minutes is like within your capacity that you have that is an acceptable amount of loading and we can then test out whether we continue with 15 minutes or whether we start to push a little bit beyond that 15 minutes. In the same scenario, you could try to run for 3K. So now we're looking at distance rather than time on feet. And if that's successful, then we know that 3K is tolerated. So it doesn't really matter because you still have that same reference point. And this is provided that 
the intensity and the terrain are also consistent because you could run a fast 15 minutes or you could run a really slow 3k as long as your intensity as long as the terrain because you might do um, you might keep to the level level ground or you might avoid downhills or you might you know it might be a slight uphill I want to make sure everything's consistent to know that we're interpreting our response to a particular run we're interpreting it correctly so my preference um, I usually stick to distance or time-based sort of stuff when there's a particular injury that's really irritable or there has been a long time off running or it's quite a chronic injury that's not really tolerating a lot of loading I like to do time-based because it's going to have a lot of walk runs in there and why I do that is because it's kind of easier if if someone's got an injury that's really severe and it can't really tolerate a lot of running I'd rather say okay you can just run for two minutes and then walk for two minutes and repeat that say you know three to five times that's easier to follow just running for two minutes walking for two minutes than to say okay I want you to jog for 500 meters and then walk for 300 meters so it's a little bit harder to follow so that's purely it's based off ease ease of following those instructions uh, however once a symptom or once an injury becomes a little bit more stable or more predictable or can tolerate greater distances or greater loading I tend to swap to distance based and so I say um, okay now let's run a continuous 5k rather than based on minutes and that's just my preference if someone wants to say continue with um, the time based and say they're now progressing to 30 minutes continuous and then 35 minutes continuous it doesn't really matter like I say it's um, a point of preference provided that everything is consistent and provided that the intensity the RPE everything remains um, the same hope that made sense and thanks for your question Sam Hey Brody, Andre Bredovic here. So what I'd like to know about is the association between Achilles tendinopathies and calf issues and glute issues. So how does that all interplay how we can fix that by working and building strength in our calves and our associated muscles, if that makes sense? Thanks. Good to hear from you, Andre. Thanks for submitting your question. Uh, we're delving into like the link between well is there a link between achilles tendinopathy and like leg weakness because if there is then it can help us tailor the management or the treatment or prevention of those sort of tendinopathies so if we're talking about achilles tendinopathy specifically um i can delve into the research and have okay what does the research say because there is some nice evidence out there um, when preparing for this, I found a study, which I'm very familiar with in the past anyway. Um, the title is Adelphi Study of Risk Factors for Achilles Tendinopathy, Opinions of, of World Tendon Experts. And so this is a kind of like a systematic review, just trying to find risk factors associated with Achilles Tendinopathy. And then they also once they compile all the evidence, they have these opinions from the experts, from the researchers to say, okay, what, what do we think is the best link and what do we think is the best management? And um, they 
separated the risk factors for Achilles tendinopathy, but they also separated the populations into two groups. So the populations between the athletic or the active slash athletic individuals, and then the inactive slash sedentary individuals. And it's nice to make those associations because we're mainly talking about runners here. So those who have, who are inactive and sedentary, they can still develop Achilles tendinopathy, but the reason they might develop an Achilles tendinopathy might be completely different to uh, the running population. And so it's really nice that they've um, sorted these out into two groups. And I have a table right in front of me that has the risk factors that they've come up with for Achilles tendinopathy. And they've also ranked it in terms of relevance or in terms of correlation. Um, so we have it, we have it here. Number one is a previous lower limb tendinopathy. It doesn't matter what tendinopathy it is. If it's in the lower limb and you've had it before, the more um, injuries you've had in the past or the more tendinopathies you've had in the lower leg in the past, the higher the risk of you developing an Achilles tendinopathy in the future. And there's so many reasons we can point to that. It might be your training philosophy. It might be your biomechanics. It might be a whole bunch of other things, but um, that's one of the, that's one of the, well, the strongest reasons. The second one, which is along the same line. So this is number two, and it's just any recent injury, any tissue, any, um, so now we're not talking about tendinopathies. We're now talking about like muscle strains or um, calf strains or anything associated with that. Number three is advancing age. So the older you are, the more likely you are, uh, the more likely you are to develop an Achilles tendinopathy. Four is gender. Um, so males are more likely to receive an Achilles tendinopathy. Number five, number five is muscle power and muscle strength. And so this is what we're delving into for uh, Andre's question. And so there is an association if you are weaker or you do have reduced amounts of power, this study tends to show that there is a, a correlation there, but it's not one of the higher ranked ones. It's fifth on the list. And if anyone's, uh, I can ramble through the rest of this list because there's 12 here. Um, I could just quickly go through them. So there's steroid exposure, reduced ankle dorsiflexion, which is just ankle range of movement, weight, antibiotic treatment. So if you've had a course of antibiotics in the past, um, foot pronation, obesity, and then foot alignment. And so the foot pronation, the obesity and foot alignment are just really weakly linked because they're the lowest on this um, scale. So there might not really be an association there. It's, it's really far down the list. So we're looking higher up. Um, this is, I should say, this is intrinsic factors. This is what's within the body, but there's also another table here that has extrinsic factors for the active population. That's changes in load, training errors, activity levels, like all the things that we know lead to an injury based on previous episodes of the podcast. But um, we're talking here on this table when it comes to muscle strength, muscle power, it's more the intrinsic factors. Um, so what's happening within the body and sometimes you don't have any control over. So sometimes you don't have control over your age or you don't have control over your gender. Um, but I guess intrinsic, extrinsic factors, extrinsic factors you have more control over. Um, anyway, so Andre, there is a link between um, 
muscle power, strength, and developing an Achilles tendinopathy. doesn't say specifically what muscle groups, but um, I've got my own kind of interpretations. Oh, I should say that they're um, the experts and researchers who wrote the paper. They had they kind of concluded a few statements, and one of them was um, so the, the paper said. The experts who participated in this study suggested that muscle strength and weakness is the primary modifiable risk factor for tendinopathy in the active uh, athletic population. They also suggested muscle strengthening may be important to prevent this measure. So we're looking at a risk factor, but we're also looking at it as an intervention to prevent um, Achilles tendinopathy. My interpretation, if you are a weaker runner, if you are a weaker runner, then your adaptation zone, that adaptation ceiling is lower because if we know anything from injuries, it's a capacity issue, it's load dependent. Um, because you are weaker, you have a lower ceiling, you have a lower threshold, um, maximum capacity, whatever you want to call it. And if we know anything from running related injuries, we don't want to exceed that capacity so we just need to train really sensibly if you are one of those weaker runners that have has a reduced capacity. So um, if we say just like any, what's to say the glutes, if the glutes are weaker, you're likely to develop an Achilles tendinopathy because you have a, a lower adaptation zone and you're more likely to overdo things if you say incorporate hill work, speed work, if you transition to minimalist footwear, um, all of these things would increase the likelihood of you developing a tendinopathy. Um, this is all my interpretation, um, but makes sense in my eyes from what I know about injuries and the reasons behind injuries. So keep that in mind. However, another thing to keep in mind, if you are a weak runner, if you don't do a lot of strength work, if you find yourself, you're um, if you ever had to do, say, squats or calf raises and you're not pushing out a lot of numbers, and but you're not injured, keep in mind that you can still thrive as a runner, but your training loads need to be very carefully monitored. You need to have a real structured program and you also need to really monitor your recovery, making sure that your sleep is adequate and your um, your diet is adequate. We just You just have very little wiggle room. In my eyes, you have very little wiggle room um, to fluctuate your training because if there's ever any little blimp, ever, any little shift in training, then it increases your likelihood of injury. But if you are strong, if you're resilient, if you have spent, if you have experience working in the gym, you have more wiggle room. So you have those little blips in your training um, and you're still resilient enough to hold onto it. So thanks for that question, Andre. Hopefully that answered your question and we'll dive into our fourth and final question from Jen. Hi Brody, my question's about hip drop. At one point I went to see a PT for a running analysis and he said I have too much hip drop. So he had me work on single leg squats with a focus on level hips during the exercise and then he also had me focus on driving my legs when I ran. I really found this uncomfortable so I stopped doing that and my question is what is hip drop and is it important to minimize? If so, how does one go about doing this? And is it possible to do it through exercise and not by changing running form? Thanks, Jen. There's a few different avenues or um, direction I, I can take this. Uh, so the question is around about, okay, first of all, what is hip drop? So 
if you are making contact on the ground, if you're running and you make contact on the ground with your right foot, we kind of look at this phase which or this moment in time that we call mid-stance. So mid-stance is when your foot is directly underneath your body. So if you can imagine you go from initial contact where your heel makes contact with the ground, it's a little bit in front of the body, hopefully not too far in front because we don't want that overreaching pattern. But if you go forward a few frames, you can see the foot is just directly underneath your hips. This is mid-stance. And then if we freeze frame mid-stance and then have a look at the runner from behind, we then have a look at the level of the hips. So we, if you have a hip drop, we also call it a contralateral hip drop. Um, contralateral just means on the other side of, on the other side of what we're refer, on of what we're talking about. So if we're talking about the right foot and it's directly under the body in mid stance, the left hip could drop down towards the floor, and that uh, I guess in theory um, is kind of like a less ideal, less um, efficient position to be in because your muscles are a little bit more stretched or they're a little bit, it's a bit harder to activate or have this um, ideal position to operate. And so that's what hip drop is. Does it relate to injury? There is an interesting uh, article from Chris Brammer, which I commonly refer back to. So Chris Brammer was um, appeared on the podcast uh, last year and talked about these sort of things around running mechanics, biomechanics. Is there any association with injuries? But he does have a really interesting study that he looked at. Um, he got 72 injured runners and he got 36 healthy runners and just had a look at how they ran, had a look at some mechanics, the biomechanics, how um, they looked when they ran, what the angles were and tried to see if there was any difference between the injured runners and the healthy runners. And it's, it, we do need to interpret this carefully because if you're an injured runner, you might run differently compared to if you were injury free and the healthy runners, they're probably um, a little bit more mechanically um, or maybe not as apprehensive to, to run with freedom because they're injury free. Um, keep in mind though that Chris Brammer and, and colleagues made uh, made sure that the runners weren't in pain while they were running. So an example, they may have knee pain. Uh, they may be able to tolerate five minutes of running pain-free before symptoms start to creep up. And so they study their running and their mechanics and their angles and the loads um, in those first five minutes. So we know that while the runner is running, they're not in pain, but they are injured, if that makes sense. And then they try to make the difference between the two, see if there's any correlations, see if there's anything that they can pick out to say that these injured runners run a certain way and these healthy runners run a certain way. And they found um, that contralateral hip drop was the most common predictor I'll, I'll actually, I'll just read out their statement. We found contralateral pelvic drop to be the most important 
predictor variable when classifying runners as healthy or injured. They go on to say that peak contralateral hip drop, which is like the, the force, um, the force generated. So if the, if the peak was quite high, so the peak contralateral pelvic drop was found to be the kinematic parameter most commonly associated with running injuries. So again, finding that close association. And then interestingly enough, there, another statement they made is importantly for every one degree increase in pelvic drop, there was an 80% increase in the odds of someone being classified as injured. So for every 1% in, of hip drop, it was 80% more likely that they were within though that injured group compared to the healthy group. So that's a pretty stark finding. And again, we need to be careful with how we interpret this because maybe those injured runners, even though they're running symptom-free, they might be um, changing how they're running because they've recognized that they are injured. So we do need to be careful with how we interpret interpret this, but it is a nice finding. Um, so there may be some differences. There may, like pelvic drop may be crucial. Um, it might be different between men and women as well because of the arrangement of the hips. Females have wider hips. They're more likely to, if they have a pelvic drop, it's more likely um, accompanied with a femur internal rotation or like what we call hip adduction. So their knees are closely brushing together. Whereas um, it's also referred to as like a Q angle, um, a, a greater Q angle. Whereas males, they have narrower hips and they it just like the forces are generated a bit differently. So another thing to keep in mind. Um, so there might be, maybe if you are injured, if you do have like hip pain or ITB syndrome or shin splints or um, problems around the ankle and you do have a hip drop, then maybe it's worth correcting. But how do we correct it? How do we change it? What's... Um, what's the most effective, this is my interpretation and listening to um, other colleagues that I pay attention to. I believe that strengthening will definitely help, but how it helps, um, you're definitely building up strength and building up capacity so that we know that's already good for injuries, no matter what the injury is. If we build up your capacity through strength and through rehab and through a um, progressive running plan based on symptoms, then we know that's good because the overall capacity is building up. But I'm reluctant to say that if you do single leg squats with a level hip, um, that if you do that enough and get strong enough that you become really good at it, that you'd go back onto a treadmill and your hip drop would be improved. I'm hesitant to say that would actually happen. I know when I very first um, started doing running courses with JF Escoulier, the research at the time was more around you can strengthen someone up as strong as you can, but then you put them back on the treadmill and they run exactly the same. The loads that are generated are simply too high. The, the ground reaction force is too high. They just sink back into their normal running rhythm, their normal running patterns. However, they feel a lot better and their symptoms might be a lot better from strength training because you've built up the capacity You've built up the strength for them to tolerate uh, heavier loads, but they just run this the same rhythm. Unless you start working on gait retraining. And if you start working on great gait retraining and giving them a few cues on how to change their running um, consciously, then everything changes instantly. So 
I do know that increasing your cadence changes the loads on the hips. I do know that if you have a very low cadence and you increase that cadence, um, your hips activate differently and it can reduce the, the amount of hip drop in some cases, um, not in all cases, but in some cases. So maybe if you are eliciting a hip drop, if you do have pain and you do have low cadence, which would be uh, like 160, maybe under 165, it probably would be worth to increase that cadence, which may be, Jen, the, um, the cueing that you're saying driving through um, your swing phase, um, maybe increasing cadence was the intention, um, but there may be other cues that you might find more comfortable in order to raise that cadence. I don't know enough about your presentation to, to know um, exactly what to do about it or the tailored advice that might be required. But as soon as you change someone's cadence, they change the way they run instantly and they don't need that strength training in order to change the way they run. Um, potentially a wider step width, if they do have a narrow or a crossover step width, that would help hip drop because the angles are just a little bit more um, wider, a little bit more aligned, you might say. But I do think as, a, as I'm summing up this kind of question, I do think hip drop is a bit overdiagnosed. And it's similar to having weak glutes or um, glutes not firing. It's a, it's kind of a cop out. It's kind of what a lot of health professionals say to runners, just to, um, just be. They might see it, they might not, but um, I do think it's a bit overdiagnosed. Just, just my general feel of what I've seen as runners are presenting to me, um, and then I assess their their running or assess their strength and um, see. A different sort of pattern. Anyway, so these are the four questions. Let me just do a nice quick summary as we tie a bow on this 200th episode. So um, having a speed goal and a distance goal concurrently can actually work well in tandem. They can actually um, feed off each other performance-wise. So it can be good. Just make sure that you set some goals, making sure you progress sensibly and that intensity distribution is still maintained. When it comes to returning from injury and getting back into training loads, doesn't really matter if you use distance or time. We just want to make sure the, the variables are consistent. Achilles tendinopathy, um, there may be association with weakness and of other muscles and joints in the kinetic chain that may be associated with Achilles tendinopathy. Um, keep in mind that if you are a weak runner, you just need to train a lot more sensible uh, or you could choose to strength train and widen that that wiggle room if you wish. Uh, I know a lot of runners have been doing that, which I'm very glad because I'm a massive advocate for strength training. And then finally, the hip drop is um, that contralateral drop of the hip on the opposite side during mid stance may be associated with injuries. And if you are injured, if you do have a hip drop, if you do have a low cadence, there may be a few things that we can do to really help your recovery and help get you back to pain-free running. Thanks to everyone for submitting their questions. Sorry if I didn't get to your question, if you had it written down, particularly in the Facebook group, I know there's a ton in there. Um, I will get to your questions next time. And uh, I hope that this has at least gained a lot of insight, maybe some questions that you might've had, maybe a question you didn't think about, but have enjoyed or the question or the answer itself has built um, a bit more understanding about your running and injuries and that and so forth. 
I look forward to bringing you the next 100 episodes in the next um, you know, year or so. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your feedback. Uh, I always ask for feedback about the podcast, especially over Facebook. I always um, love hearing your feedback. And thank you so much to the patrons for all the contributions that you've made and just made it. I'm having a blast with making this uh, not only for educating people, um, but for seeing the the benefits and seeing the outcomes. I know I've, I've had a couple of listeners say, Brody, you're not doing yourself much justice because I've been overcoming my injuries and don't need you as an online physio. So you're actually, um, you're not doing well for yourself business-wise, but I always say, this is where I want to position myself. I want to, I want you guys to overcome your injuries yourself, build your own knowledge. And therefore uh, you are learning how to fish rather than me giving you a fish and then in any any future case if any future injury then you have the 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 knowledge you have the equipment to start doing it yourself that's where I want to position myself and then if you need tailored advice if you're really struggling in the future to overcome an injury hopefully I'm the first person you think about to help and um, talk you through it which there is the free 20-minute injury chat that is in every show note Um, if you do want to contribute if you do want to become a patron and engage in the podcast at a deeper level there is the um, patron link in the show notes of every episode and as i sign off for this 200th episode remember every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough and that concludes another run smarter lesson i hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a run smarter scholar Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.